everyone. Welcome to the first session in our study of the book of Esther. Today we're going to be in Esther chapter 1, and we're going to be discussing verses 1 through 12. So if I were to pick a theme for the book of Esther, it would be God fulfills his promises. And we're going to see that he often uses the most unlikely people to do so. Now, even though the title of this book is Esther, she is not the only central figure in the narrative. This account is also about her cousin Mordecai, who raised Esther as his own after the death of her parents. The fickle, narcissistic king of Persia, Ahasuerus, is also a prominent figure, as is the evil, vindictive Haman, the king's royal official. Now, what is most notable about this amazing account is the fact that God is never mentioned, not once in all ten chapters, which leads us to wonder, how can a book that never mentions God be a part of the holy canon of Scripture? But what we're going to discover is that although God is never mentioned, He is most definitely present. In each and every chapter, we see His hand orchestrating events in order to fit together His perfect plan. Hopefully, we'll be encouraged as we read that God is ever-present in our lives, even when we can't see Him. Even when we can't feel Him, He's there. Philippians 1.6 says, I am sure of this. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And this is a verse that applies to everyone, even a regular person like me. And that's the beautiful thing about this book that Esther and Mordecai, they're regular people too. Esther in particular probably wouldn't have even been considered a regular person in that culture. She was a woman, an orphan, and a Jew. She probably wouldn't have been very highly regarded. I recently read a quote that said, Just as great doors can swing on small hinges, so great events can turn upon the deeds of small, sometimes anonymous people. Esther and Mordecai are two people who had little significance according to the world, but God chose them to save their entire race from destruction. So let's read Esther chapter 1 verses 1 through 12 from the CSB. These events took place during the days of Ahasuerus, who ruled 127 provinces from India to Cush. In those days, King Ahasuerus reigned from his royal throne in the fortress at Susa. He held a feast in the third year of his reign for all his officials and staff, the army of Persia and Media, the nobles, and the officials from the provinces. He displayed the glorious wealth of his kingdom and the magnificent splendor of his greatness for a total of 180 days. At the end of this time, the king held a week-long banquet in the garden courtyard of the royal palace for all the people from the greatest to the least, who were present in the fortress of Susa. White and blue linen hangings were fastened with fine white and purple linen cords to silver rods on marble columns. Gold and silver couches were arranged on a mosaic pavement of red feldspar, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in an array of gold goblets, each with a different design, Royal wine flowed freely according to the king's bounty. The drinking was according to royal decree. There are no restrictions. The king had ordered every wine steward in his household to serve whatever each person wanted. 
Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women of King Ahasuerus' palace. On the seventh day, when the king was feeling good from the wine, Ahasuerus commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who personally served him, to bring Queen Vashti before him with her royal crown. He wanted to show off her beauty to the people and the officials because she was very beautiful. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command that was delivered by his eunuchs. The king became furious and his anger burned within him. So to truly grasp the impact and importance of these events, we must understand the context. The events in Esther took place during the time that Judah was in exile. Now, as you remember, over a hundred years earlier, God warned the people of Judah that if they continued rebelling against God and worshiping idols, that they would be punished. God, in his mercy, sent prophet after prophet, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and others, to warn the Jewish people that worshiping false gods would not be tolerated. Yet they refused to listen. Jeremiah 4.22 says they were skilled in doing evil. They did not know how to do what was good. Despite all the miraculous signs and wonders that God performed for them, he rescued them from bondage by the Egyptians. He provided a path to freedom by parting a sea. He led them through the wilderness with a cloud and with fire. When they were hungry, he provided food. When they were thirsty, he provided water. He faithfully rescued them from their enemies. And after all this, they still chose false gods, idols made with human hands who could never do anything for them. And so God, in his righteousness and for their own good, pronounced judgment. He sent the kingdom of Babylon to conquer them. Jeremiah 4, 14 through 18 says, O Jerusalem, wash the evil from your hearts so that you will be delivered. How long will you harbor malicious thoughts? Warn the nations, proclaim to Jerusalem, those who besiege are coming from a distant land. They have surrounded her because she has rebelled against me. Your way and your actions have brought this upon you. This is your punishment. So Babylon destroyed Judah and the temple in Jerusalem. But all was not lost. God, in his infinite mercy and divine providence, spared some of the Jewish people. Jeremiah 24, verses 5-7 through says, The God of Israel says, I regard as good these exiles from Judah that I sent away from this place to the land of the Chaldeans. I will keep my eyes on them and will return them to this land. I will build them up. I will give them a heart to know me. They will be my people, and I will be their God. So why? Why did God choose to spare some of the Jewish people? Well, because he made a promise. God made a promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, 2, that he would make him into a great nation. And God always keeps his promises. And we must remember that when God come, um, when it comes to um, God's children, when it comes to His children, God never punishes for retribution, but for restoration. God doesn't punish us to get us back, but to bring us back. So, if you feel like that you've been walking away from God, not following Him, don't lose heart. You can always come back to God. 
And if you're thinking, well, I've gone too far. I've gone too far away to come back to God. Please know, with God, there is no too far. You are never out of his reach. Turn away from the sin and turn back to him. So God preserved a remnant of Jewish people who remained in Babylon. Now, roughly 70 years later, Babylon was invaded and conquered by Persia. And King Ahasuerus was the fourth king of Persia. So the descendants of the Jewish exiles, like Esther and Mordecai, were still living there. So this is the environment in which Esther and Mordecai lived. Although the Jews had been living in the land for a century under two different empires, they were still considered to be foreigners, and they were being subjugated by foreign powers. So I would imagine that it was a pretty tense and sometimes even dangerous existence. Now, in verse 1, it says that the events of the book of Esther took place during the days of Ahasuerus. Now, as I mentioned earlier, he was the fourth king of Persia, and he ruled from 486 to 465 B.C. It also says that he ruled 127 provinces from India to Kush. His empire was vast. It spanned from India in the east all the way to Greece in the west, including Egypt and Africa in the south. And here in verses 2 through 4, we see that he held a feast for all his officials, his army, his nobles, and staff. He displayed the glorious wealth and magnificent splendor of his greatness for 180 days. So this lavish exhibition that we see, I think here we see just how prideful and narcissistic the king was. But there's probably more going on here than just that. Scholars speculate that the king is holding this extravagant banquet in order to strategize with his army and his officials about invading Greece. His father, King Darius, suffered a crushing defeat against Greece in the Battle of Marathon in 490 BC, and it's quite possible that Ahasuerus wants revenge. So this six-month-long banquet was a strategic maneuver to bring in all the leaders of the Persian provinces bring them in on a rotating basis to drum up support and impress them with the display of power and grandeur. So this is the historical significance of these events, but what is the spiritual significance? I mean, why would the writer of this book want us to know these things? Well, remember the quote that large doors can swing on small hinges? Well, that's what we're going to see time and time again. What seems insignificant really isn't. Because this banquet is what begins the chain of events that leads to Esther's rise to power. And in verses 5 through 8, we see that at the end of the six-month-long feast, he holds another week-long banquet for all the people, from the least to the greatest, who were present in his fortress at Susa. Verses 6 through 9 describe this banquet. It says, White and blue linen hangings were fastened with fine white and purple linen cords, to silver rods on marble columns. Gold and silver couches were arranged on a mosaic pavement of red feldspar, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in an array of gold goblets, each with a different design. Royal wine flowed freely. The king had ordered every wine steward in his household to serve whatever each person wanted. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women of the king. So all the men were in attendance at this banquet, 
perhaps for one final conference and rally before invading Greece. And so, as was the custom in that day, Queen Vashti gave a separate feast for all of the women in the palace. And in verses 10 through 12, we learn that on the seventh day of the banquet, when the king was feeling pretty good with wine, he orders that Queen Vashti be brought to him so that he can show off her beauty. But the queen refuses to come. Then the king becomes furious and burns with anger. His anger is so intense and powerful that he ends up deposing the queen and sends her away. And the process of finding a new queen begins. Now, at the time that all this is happening, Esther and Mordecai, they had no idea that God was putting a plan in motion and that they would be the key players in God's plan to save the Jews from annihilation. Jeremiah 29, 11, the Lord says, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. God has a plan for your life. You may not have a clue right now where this plan will take you, but keep your eyes trained on Jesus. Keep your heart open and receptive to his words and keep your mind focused on following his ways and his plan will come together for you in his perfect timing. But for right now, be patient and trust that he is putting all the necessary pieces of his plan for you in place. Just as we see from the text, God works out his plan, and he will even use unbelieving pagans like King Ahasuerus to do it. As we see from verse 10, the king had been partying for a week. He's been showing off his possessions and figures it's a good idea to show off his ultimate possession, his queen. So he orders her to be brought to him. And verse 9 tells us she refused to come. Now, scripture doesn't tell us why she didn't come, but... I don't think it's because she was sick or unable to come, because the text doesn't say that she could not come. It says she refused to come. This refusal was a breach of etiquette and a major affront to the king, which leads me to believe that she must have had a pretty good reason for refusing. But what we do know is that a large group of men have been partying for seven days straight, and we know that wine has been flowing freely. So it's easy to assume that she didn't want to be paraded around in front of a bunch of drunken officials. A fairly logical reason, in my opinion, but not to the king. Her response sends him into a fit of rage. Now this reveals a lot about the personality of the king, doesn't it? He was surrounded by sycophants. His every whim and desire was being fulfilled. And it doesn't take long for situations like that to go to your head it becomes difficult to listen to reason. When your every desire is being gratified, the sense of reality and perspective becomes blurred. So when the, ki- the queen stood up for herself and gave him a dose of reality, he couldn't take it. You know, there's a reason why in scripture it tells us in Romans 12:3 not to think of yourself more highly than you should think. Instead, think of yourself sensibly. It's dangerous when we think we deserve more than what we have. That kind of attitude causes anger, bitterness, and resentment. Instead, we should follow Paul's example in Philippians 4, verses 11 through 13, where he says, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know how to make do with little and with a lot. In any circumstance, I have learned the secret of being content. 
I am able to do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That is the key to being content, staying in Christ, staying connected to Him. Staying connected to Jesus changes our entire outlook on life. So as we close, our challenge for this week is, are we staying connected to Jesus? Are we trusting Him in our current circumstances that He is working out His perfect plan? Let's pray to see life from His perspective, for that is where true peace is found. Thank you so much for joining me today. God bless you.